Well, last week we began our time, uh, we began this, this first part of this series on the canon as we're looking from where we are today backwards in time, trying to, trying to figure out what, what are the, who are the witnesses to the canon that we have right now. Uh, when we're beginning with the Old Testament specifically because it's um, a little harder and we'll get to the New Testament because it's easier. Uh, but but there were, they also, do you remember the issue that we looked at when we looked at the, the Roman church and the, the Greek Orthodox church and our church? All the New Testament books are the same. There's no dispute there. And so if, if someone is going to run up against the canonicity of something uh, in the New Testament, they're going to have to fight against every Christian throughout Christendom. But if, if, if you're going to dispute something old, in the Old Testament, well, you're going to get a few different opinions. And so what we've done is try to trace back uh, in an evidence-based way how the Protestant church ended up with the Old Testament that we have. Uh, and, and last week we began with our own Bibles, and we walked backwards to the publishers, and we walked from the publishers back into history to the Protestant Reformation. And that took us back to, do you remember who? Kind of the main character of Jerome. Yeah, so we ended up back with Jerome, uh, late 300s A.D., early 400s A.D. And if you remember, Jerome had put together the, the Latin Vulgate of the Bible. So he had taken the Hebrew Old Testament translated it into Latin, and for a number of reasons, also brought some of those old apocryphal books from the Septuagint, translated those into Latin, and said, these aren't the Bible, <laughs> right? He said, these are, these are not the inspired books, and, and they need their own category, and we're going to call them apocrypha, and he's, he's borrowing some language from Origen and some other contemporaries of, or, or Origen's far a lot before him, but some other guys around his time. And then, do you remember who it was that said, no, no, these are Bible. It was Augustine, the troublemaker. Yeah. Was that what you were going to point out as well, Laura? Yes, right. Uh, Augustine and Hippo. And you remember some of the disputes. Uh, Augustine was, was a little bit worried about a Bible that was going to look different than the Bible that the Eastern Church had. And he was already a little bit uh, nervous as bishop uh, over that area in North Africa and, and wanted to make sure that there, weren't, there were as few disputes as possible between, between the Eastern and Western church. And so, ever the politician, he ends up sort of setting in grain for the Roman church from there on the use of the Apocrypha as what they believed was inspired scripture. And yet... We remember the Protestants pointing back to Jerome saying, but Jerome said, these aren't inspired scripture. And so what, what our task today is to, to look at where Jerome was getting his information from. Uh, so you have Jerome, and if you remember, he was, he was working mostly in the area of, of Syria, Damascus, where he was being trained by Jewish scholars, working mostly with Jews in the Hebrew language, and was striving to polish his Hebrew as, as well as he could so that as many people could get as close to the original language as they could. Uh, and one of the, his sources was the Hebrew traditions. Remember, that we found that he had learning from uh, Hebrews that are Jews at that time that the Hebrew Bible contained, do you remember how many books? 24 books, that's right. Uh, so they're telling him the Hebrew Bible contains 24 books, and you remember we had a list we had the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, around that time, uh, you have one physical bit of evidence that we have that it's not just Jerome's word. is something called the Babylonian Talmud. Anybody heard the Talmud before? Help me out here. Describe kind of what the Talmud is. is it, what's that? The laws of the Pharisees, yes. So, so these, are, these are the traditions on top of the Old Testament writings. So this, the, there are a few different schools of Judaism. 
And uh, they have, within their traditions, writings that show what their interpretations of Scripture are. And, and there's a, in their writings, what we would call rabbinical literature. So this is writings from rabbis. Um, this is the traditions from 200 to 400 A.D. This is from a, a Jewish school of thought beginning around 20 A.D. And what, by the time a lot of this stuff gets documented, the way their documentation works is my rabbi told me whose rabbi told him whose rabbi told him. And then somebody else writes down what had been written down prior. And so these are, these are the books that they have gathered together and said these are the two. So this is 24, very, very similar to the list that we saw last week with Jerome. And it makes sense. These are his contemporaries. These are Jewish contemporaries of Jerome. This is what they're saying the Old Testament canon is. Let's see if I can find a... Uh, the, the beginning of this letter says simply, our rabbis taught us these are our inspired books, and no more than that. So we can see that there's some evidence contemporary to Jerome. Now, if we go backwards in time, so we're thinking 300s, 400s AD, and we go backwards in time, we're going to end up at a, um, with, with a guy named Josephus. Anybody heard of Josephus before? Josephus, kind of famous historian because he lived during the time of Christ. And so he's writing about things that are happening uh, short, shortly after Jesus Christ. He was born in 37, so he was born after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven. But we're, we're talking like contemporary to the apostles. So Josephus is a Jewish historian, a son of a priest, and um, a prolific writer in many ways, and he wrote a book called Against Apion, and this is uh, late in his life. He worked a lot between uh, trying to, to defend Judaism, I guess is the, is the way to describe it. His, his goal in life was to make sure that the Jews weren't obliterated uh, from, from their land, and so he once he saw the strength of Rome, he, he determined that he, he knew that they couldn't fight against Rome, but he did know that they could kind of keep the peace. And so he would, was an apologist, if you will, for, for, the, for the Jewish faith. And so one particular book he writes called Against Apion. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I don't know. Sounds okay to me. It looks right. Um, and in that book... He's trying to show them these are the traditions of the Greeks and these are the traditions of the Jews. The Greeks are a people with lots and lots of writings and the Jews are also a people with lots and lots of writings, but our writings don't contradict each other. Let me read you what he says, if I can find the quote. For we have not, this is, this is from Josephus, a collection of his writings. For we, as Jews, we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books. And so he, he's, he's talking back about the, the history of Judaism, and he says we only have 22 books which contain the records of all the past times. And, and he was right previously to this, in this writing, he's saying that we keep good records. Our priests know what tribe they came from and what tribe they came from and, and who's marrying who. They, they keep very good records. And he's kind of bragging about that, showing that there are people who are well-learned and they write things down. And that's important to him in defending Judaism. So we have only these 22 books. And notice these are, this is a different list. And you'll see in a minute how he describes his list. And this is uh, around, uh, you see, 92 to 95 A.D. Uh, so 300 years before the previous list that I just showed you. And yet, all the books are represented on here, and, and you'll see how they are in just a moment. And here's how he says it. These books contain all the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine. So what does that tell you about his understanding of these books? 
What is Josephus, if he calls these books divine, what does he, what does he believe about? They're inspired. Yeah, so these are, these are from God. In them, or of these, five belong to Moses. So we, this is kind of a riddle that we're going to have to work out, and this is how I've written it down. Five belong to Moses, and, and I'm assuming, I think we can all assume, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, so there's the five that belong to Moses, he says, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. So till Moses' death, which is what, what we end up with. This interval t- of time was little short of 3,000 years, but as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. So there's five, and now we have 13, and he's saying that these guys, the prophets, remember these categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings? Josephus' categories are a little bit different, but he says the prophets tell us about from the time of the death of Moses all the way to the end of Artaxerxes' reign. And so we're kind of thinking chronologically in Bible history where that would be. Uh, his ordering is going to be a little bit different as well. He's, it's his late, late uh, first century, and for whatever reason that we won't get into today, uh, Jews were constantly debating about the order of their canon. My interest is to see what books are there. We'll sort the order out, right? Because the, sometimes you can read them chronologically. I don't know if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you read it chronologically, is it going to be out of order? Sometimes the, the, the poetry books are mixed in in a different way. Uh, but we also remember Chronicles was at the end of that Talmud uh, list. That's going to come into play in a minute. So we have the 13 books of the prophets, and then he says the remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. And the best we can determine is the, the hymns to God books are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. He, he didn't give us an exact list, and we're going from 24 down to 22, and the way we're doing that is we're either adding Ruth to the end of Judges, or some would say, no, no, you need to put Ruth at the beginning of Psalms because David wrote most of the Psalms and Ruth tells us about David's beginnings, his origins. All right, so Ruth fits somewhere in there. Nobody, nobody disputes the fact that Josephus wants Ruth in the canon. It's just where he puts it, we're not sure. So there's one book attested for. And then um, the other one was Jeremiah Lamentations. Uh, oftentimes in some of the older lists of the Old Testament, these two are fixed together. Jeremiah and Lamentations, same writer, are just two parts of one book. Any questions about this list? Yes, Laura. Some of them were, some of them weren't, but all of them are in the Septuagint. But, uh, and we'll get, we'll get to some of that in a minute, but the point is, that's a good question. Was, were any of those apocryphal books on this list, according to the Jews in around 400 AD? No. So they, they would not consider any of those books holy, divine, inspired. Josephus didn't either. And yet they knew about these books. It's not like they couldn't find them. They knew about these books, but they said these are clearly Canon, Old Testament canon. Uh, so we're, we're hearing from Josephus, another witness to, to what Scripture is. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what he says about some of these books. Um, he says, For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to this list or to take anything from it. All right, so he, he's saying, we don't mess with this list. This is a, uh, that, that kind of gives testimony to the idea that it is canon. That is, a, it's an untouchable list in many ways. 
We don't, we don't try to change it, but it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines and to pers persist in them, and if occasion be, willingly to die for them, which if you do read the apocryphal writings, you see people did die for these, for this list. And so these, this is the holy list going back. We're now back around the end of the first century, which is we're getting pretty close now, aren't we? Um, so we're going backwards from uh, Josephus. We have a uh, kind of a council. It's not really a council, but a can anybody remember what happened in 70 A.D.? Yeah, so Jerusalem's destroyed. So imagine you're, you're Jewish. And, and better yet, you're, you're a, a priest or a scribe of some sort. And your temple just got destroyed. What, what, is, what significance does the temple have for Jewish people? Everything. Like, like if no temple, no nothing. So, like, you, you don't have... You don't have a way to do atonement anymore, to, to, to atone for sins. Of course, Christ has already come, and they should have figured it out, but they didn't. So 70 AD comes, temples destroyed, Jewish leaders and priests get permission from Rome to establish a school in Judea in a town called Jamnia, uh, J-A-M-N-I-A, Jamnia. Uh, anybody been there? Ever heard of it? You have been there? Okay. <laughs> So here they are in Jamnia, and it's kind of a, a council to say, all right, what do we do? Some people think this council was meant to close the canon. It wasn't. As we saw, Josephus said that canon's been closed for a long time. This council, this, this collection of priests, was to determine what do we do now as, as Jews without having a, a temple to go to. And, and as Jews and Christians like to do, they debated a lot of stuff. And one of the things they debated was, um, you know, you get all these scholars in a room together, and, and one of them's going to say something like, you know, that book of Esther's weird, isn't it? It doesn't talk, talk about God. And, and so, and then a, then a little debate kind of comes up, and some say, you know, I've always thought that shouldn't be in the Bible at all, because after all, she married a pagan king. Right? That's not something we good Jews do. And someone else says, you know, I've been protecting my 13-year-old son from reading the Song of Solomon because it's rated R. And they say, you know, you're right, Song of Solomon. I'm, I'm kind of ad-libbing, all right? The Song of Solomon is a little bit kind of sketchy in some ways. And so there's this debate about the Song of Solomon, about the Book of Esther, about Ecclesiastes, uh, and one other I don't remember which other book it was. Um, it was Ezekiel. Ecclesi Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes because they said there were some questionable things in there, uh, uh, given its authorship. And then Ezekiel, they were unsure about the, the way that Ezekiel says the temple should be rebuilt. And they thought maybe there were some contradictions in there. So basically it was a, a good old-fashioned theological debate and in the end, they, they said, made the same conclusion that we see later on. The books of the Bible are the books of the Bible. They, and the, the word that they would use to describe them as, these are the books that defile the hands. So if you, if you touch one of these scrolls uh, that are considered the holy books, they would, uh, you would have to go through a special hand-washing ceremony. And so it was, there was sort of a, a, these books defile the hands saying. Now, which books do you think they would say did not defile the hands? The apocryphal books. So, so this same, at this same council, uh, they're looking at the apocryphal books and saying, you know, these have some really good things to say, including the, the one that consistently comes up is the wisdom of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. And they, they would say, this, this talks about the same theology that we affirm. It, it, it holds high the, the teachings that we teach, and yet it does not defile the hands the way even Esther, which says nothing about God, 
defiles the hands. Uh, again, just using that terminology. That, that they would hold Esther as divinely inspired canon and not Ecclesiasticus or the wisdom of Siraj. So this is 70 AD, same conclusions that we saw with Jerome going back to Josephus and before that the Talmud and then now we're at 70 AD. We can't get much closer to Christ, uh, but we have one other, um, a, couple other, a couple other sources actually. There's one guy named Philo, or Philo, the Jewish philosopher, born 20 BC, died 45 AD. So a really contemporary of Jesus Christ. And in his writings, I don't have any with me, but um, he would quote Old Testament scripture frequently. And one of the ways that he would quote Old Testament scripture, and so this is, the only reason I'm pointing to him is because he's a Jew living in the time of Jesus Christ, all right? And in his, the way that he would quote scripture, he would say something like, uh, the Holy Scripture says, and then he would quote Judges. Or the prophet says, and then he would quote Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea. Or it is revealed in these books, as in divine revelation. And he would say something from the Kings or from Chronicles. So the, the, the reason we're looking at Philo is because of the way that he referred to Scripture. Now, he's, he's an outsider because he also sometimes used that language to talk about apocryphal writings. So he's kind of weird. But uh, one thing to note about him is he was from Alexandria. He was heavily, heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and oftentimes what he would do is try to mix Greek philosophy with Jewish philosophy and Jewish ideology. And so in doing that, it would make sense that he's going to pull in some of this apocryphal stuff to support his strange ideas. So he's kind of an outlier, but he does see these as canon, same books as us. There's one other, um, around 70 A.D., there is an apocryphal book, almost more like pseudepigraphal, which means uh, a pseudepigrapha is when you say somebody wrote it who didn't really write it. So like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, that's pseudepigrapha. That's, it's pseudo-false, it's false writing. Well, there's, there's a book in um, the Apocrypha written in 70 A.D., called Four Ezra, like Fourth Ezra, right? We only have one Ezra. Well, there's four. Uh, but this one is pseudepigraphal. And this is what Four Ezra says. Again, this is written 70 AD, so same first century Jewish writing. Let me read you what this book says. Moreover, the Most High gave understanding to the five men, and by turns they wrote what was dictated using characters that they did not know. So, so this Ezra is saying, I got this special revelation and this special ability, and I could speak, and these five men would write down everything I said. So that's kind of just catching you up to the context here. And they would use characters that they did not know, which is to say they're, they're writing in Hebrew, and they, they should have no business knowing Hebrew. Uh, they sat 40 days. They wrote during the daytime and ate their bread at night, but as for me, I spoke in the daytime and was not silent at night. So he's, he's just speaking for 40 days straight. So during the 40 days, 94 books were written. So we only have 24. And he's saying 94 books were written. And when the 40 days were ended, the Most High spoke to me saying, this is, now this is a, again, just Jewish writing, 70 A.D., the Most High spoke to me saying, make public the 24 books. The 24 books. Make these public that you wrote first and let the worthy and unworthy read them. So this is, everybody gets to read this. This is inspired scripture. But keep the 70 that were written last in order to give them to the wise among the people. Remember how we called them Apocrypha because they were hidden? This is what for Ezra is saying as well. You have 24 books that are canon, and then you have 70 books 
that you've written down that are special books, but they're not for everybody. And, and this is kind of, um, I, I'm not saying that this, this supports those 70 books as canon. I'm saying that the big idea is they support the 24 books as canon and the 70 books as a different category. And that's, that's the big idea that we're, as we're going back from looking at our Protestant Bibles, comparing it to the Eastern Orthodox Bible and the Roman Catholic Bible, ours consistently is consistent with what the Jews say should be in the Old Testament. All right, are you following that? So that's for Ezra around 70 AD. We've talked about Philo. Yes. Uh, I probably have two lines. So the book of the 12, that's one book right there. Yeah. If you're counting lines, then you're right. <laughs> for Ezra is part of Pseudepigrapha. So, it, so most of the apocryphal writings were written between the last book of our Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of the ones that especially would have been included in the Septuagint, for instance, were written in that time. The Septuagint would not have had for Ezra because it wasn't written until 70 AD. And yet, it is a pseudepigraphic writing from Jewish culture in that time period pointing to these as the inspired books. So that's the reason I read that. Do you need any other questions about that? Because I know that's a little bit interesting or uh, confusing. Yes, there are. That's exactly right. Exactly. Right. For Ezra, I point to because for Ezra shows us what the books of the Bible are. Yeah. Why is the book of Thomas so controversial? We'll get to that when we get to the New Testament canon. <laughs> Good question. Uh, so we're just sticking with the Old Testament right now. Um, so, so that gets us all the way back to, if, if we include Philo, we're in, in 45 A.D., and so now we're in New Testament times, right? So what does the New Testament have to say? Because these are Jews. So the, these, are, these are actual books written by Jews and letters written by Jews or Christian Jews. During the first century, what did they believe the Old Testament canon to be? Well, we'll say what they didn't believe it to be. And this is an argument from silence, which isn't always the strongest argument but it's a deafening silence, all right? That the New Testament quotes a lot of the Old Testament. There, and we'll, we'll see it in a second, but there are 300 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And only eight books of the Old Testament aren't quoted. Uh, they're, they're referred to in some way, maybe alluded to, but, but they're not quoted. You wanna, anybody want to guess what those eight books would be? Well, yeah, okay, so definitely not the Apocrypha. So, so uh, and, uh, uh, let's, let's finish that point. Um, almost two-thirds of the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, so you're following the language here? Almost two-thirds of them are quoting the Septuagint. So they're quoting the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew. Which means if they're quoting the Septuagint, they had the Apocrypha, right? This Apocrypha they had had for a hundred years, and yet it's never quoted in the New Testament. Never. It's not even alluded to, except for in Hebrews, when it talks about the women who were sold in two, that's a story that you see in Maccabees. And yet it's not referred to as scripture, it's just heroes, people, old Jews who died for the faith. But out of, out of all of those Old, uh, Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, none of them are, are from the Apocrypha. So that, that's kind of a deafening silence, isn't it? 300 quotes, zero Apocrypha. Also zero eight other books. Do you want to guess what those are? Song of Solomon, good. Job, I don't think it's Job. I think Job's quoted. Uh, see if I've got them written down here. So we have 
Esther, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, good. Ezra. No, Ecclesiastes is quoted. Ruth, there's five. No, Amos is quoted. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting tricky now. I'll, I'll give you the other three. Judges is actually not quoted. It's, we refer to Samson, uh, but it's actually not quoted. And then uh, Obadiah and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah, late writings, not quoted in, in the New Testament. So, so for your edification, Judges, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Obadiah. Not quoted in, in, in the yeah, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Uh, yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it, all I'm saying is they're not quoted. Now, they are alluded to. The theology in each of those eight books is consistent with the theology of the rest of the Old Testament canon. And the ideas are frequently alluded to. I have a book uh, called that's uh, Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. I use it all the time. It's very, very helpful. And in that book, uh, all of these books, all those eight books, they will say that those books are used. They're just not quoted from. So the theology, the ideas, the concepts, it's all there in the New Testament, just not a direct quote. Let me give you a, a resource. In, let's see if I can zoom in on this a little bit. I know this is light text, so just bear with me. Anybody have the ESV study Bible? Okay. I know some of you got it last week. At the back of that Bible, there is this great resource that shows you all of the Old Testament passages cited in the New Testament. And let me just kind of flow up through it. You see a lot of Genesis here. And this is, uh, if, you, if you buy the Bible, you get all the digital resources as well. And then Exodus, lots of Exodus. What two books do you think are quoted the most in the New Testament? Isaiah, Psalms. Isaiah and Psalms. Yeah. Deuteronomy. And you're starting to see... Matthew comes up a lot. Matt, as we've been studying Matthew, you've seen this over and over. It's like Matthew's just repeating the whole Old Testament over again uh, in it, through the lens of, of Christ. And then we have Joshua, Samuel, Kings. So all of these are references. Most of these references are um, very clear. Some of them you would look at and go, I don't see it. And so some of them are debatable. See right here. You have LXX, whenever it says LXX, that means they're quoting the Septuagint, the 70. Uh, so 1 Peter 14 is quoting Septuagint. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, quoting the Septuagint uh, version of Proverbs. And it just goes on and on and on, and there's more than 300 of them here. <laughs> but just kind of a neat resource to look at and go, okay, all of these New Testament writers were at least highly valuing these, these books. Were, were, did they consider them scripture? Anybody want to guess? Yeah, yeah they did. What, what, what's some of the evidence that we have that they considered these books not just good writings, not just good philosophy, but actual inspired by God? Because many people told the same um, testimony. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so we're hearing it over and over again. That they're looking back to some of these prophecies. A lot of them are looking at Psalm 2 over and over again, or like some of those Isaiah messianic prophecies. They're always being quoted, aren't they? Uh, what are some of the other evidences that they believe these are actually Scripture? Jesus quoted them a lot, yeah. So Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, doesn't he? And he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, and remember those categories... Law and prophets, this is the law, the prophets, the writings. That's how they talked about these books. Um, so Jesus frequently spoke of things that way. He did. That's right. He picks up. 
the, the, the scroll of Isaiah. So we know Isaiah is in a temple, and that's, that's another thing as well, is these 24 books are kept in the temple, and those apocryphal books were never kept in the temple. Exactly, yeah. So, so, so we call that a formula. The way that the Old Testament books are referred to is with, with some reverence. It's not just Isaiah says, it is the scriptures say, or God says, we're speaking back to Genesis. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a reverence to what is spoken of, a, a very similar way of writing to what Philo said as well. And so we can see just during that time period, the way they looked at Old Testament books was as authoritative. Sometimes they would refer to the entire Old Testament as the law. John chapter 10 refers to the entire Old Testament as the law. 1 Corinthians 14 refers to the whole Old Testament as the law. In Luke 24, you remember that scene when they're walking on the road to Damascus and Jesus says, yeah, Emmaus, thank you. <laughs> on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus says something about the prophets there. Let's look at that, Luke 24, 25. Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer, be sent, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is looking back at the Old Testament and saying, it's all prophets, it, it, which is to say all of these men are speaking on behalf of God about me. And then he goes through the categories from the law and Moses, which he considers a prophet, to the prophets and saying, look, they're pointing to, Jesus, they're pointing to me as the Christ over and over again. And, and they're beginning to see that, that picture one, look at Matthew 23, 35. This is an interesting little tidbit. Because this one kind of gives us an idea of completed canon during Jesus' day. Not just, we have some holy scrolls here and there, but we actually have a, a completed canon, a, a list of books that we consider inspired scripture. So Matthew 23, 35. And you would also find it in Luke 11.51. He says this, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So this is the end of the woes that he's speaking on the Pharisees and saying, you killed all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. I want you to just hold on to that for a second. Zechariah is not the last of the prophets. Anybody know who the last of the prophets is? Yeah, well, yeah, John the Baptist. But there's a guy named Uriah. Did you say that? Did somebody say that? Um, Uriah is actually the last of the prophets, and we see him spoken of in Jeremiah 26. And he comes 200 years after Zechariah. All right? And yet Jesus is trying to say, all the prophets, you killed all the prophets. And he's going, Abel to Zechariah. It, well, in English, that works. <laughs> but what he's saying is, Genesis to the end of Chronicles. By saying Abel to Zechariah, 
he, he's kind of speaking of including all the prophets in the Old Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament canonically, as in the books of the Old Testament and the way that their book, their Bible is ordered, then you get Abel in Genesis and Chronicles is the last, in, you'll find in Chronicles the last prophet killed is Zechariah. It's actually in Jeremiah that Uriah is killed. So chronologically, Jesus is wrong. And that doesn't happen. But canonically, in terms of left to right, beginning to end, or right to left in their Bible, you end up with, yeah, he's right. He's saying all of the Old Testament, all those prophets, you killed. And so woe to you Pharisees, which tells you when Jesus looks back at the Old Testament canon, he's looking at Genesis to Chronicles. Are you seeing how that works? So when he says Abel to Zechariah, he's saying Old Testament, which tells us he had a canon. He had a completed book to say beginning to end of that book. The way we would say table of contents to the maps, right? He, he would say Genesis to Chronicles. And so Jesus is thinking in terms of a canon there. Any questions about that? I know that's a little bit confusing. Yeah, go to Jonathan. Exactly. Jesus' day. And, and we'll see even before then. Right. So, so what my argument for, you, for us today is to see is it's not just Jerome. It's Jerome in around 400 A.D. going to Jews during that time who are following traditions that go back to Josephus in 90 A.D., back to that meeting in Jamnia in 70 A.D., back to our New Testament. Yeah, he would, he would just, he would say the scriptures. He would say the law, the prophets, and the writings. He went to the temples and the synagogues and found those and read those separate, those are separate books? They, they would have been trained in those books. They were never really the 24 books of the, that came later, the 24 books put together for Jesus. Where did they think the Hebrew Bible come from? Yeah, here, in Jesus' day, they had it. And what we're seeing, though, is even before then, and I want to show you that even before Jesus came, they had an understanding that these 24 books are the Old Testament. So let's, let's go back a little bit further. Remember these apocryphal writings that we've heard about? Anybody heard of the Maccabees? All right. So Maccabees is in the middle of the apocryphal writings, and, and these are writings that were written mostly between uh, the last prophet, which would be Malachi, all the way up to Jesus' day. Maccabees was written 200s BC, somewhere in there, maybe 130s um, BC. And just let me tell you, uh, let me read for you from Maccabees. And, and if you read, they're, they're worth reading. I wouldn't say don't read them. They're not going to like, they're not going to hurt your faith. They're actually really encouraging to see the faith of the Jewish people during a time of trial. So in 1 Maccabees, it says, so uh, this is chapter 9, verse 27. So there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. So, so tracking with me here. The apocryphal books themselves recognized there were not prophets during that age, which means no one is speaking on behalf of God during that age, which means there's no scripture during that age. Are you, are you following what they themselves believed about their own writings? Did you have a question, Ruth? No? Okay. Exactly. So this is during the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Their own writings are saying, we're not writing God-inspired books here because we're not prophets. There are no prophets. 
And that's part of what they're mourning about. And there's three different references in the Maccabees that, that talk about there being no prophets. And because there's no prophets to speak on behalf of God, they have priests who are doing some of the work. But again, it's not Scripture. And they're testifying that themselves, saying what we say isn't Scripture. There's another one uh, at the very beginning of Ecclesiasticus, also known as Sirach. There's, Good. Yeah. No, different guy altogether. Yeah. Uh, his name's uh, Ben Sirah, or son of Sirah, who are, he's the grandson of a guy named Sirah, or Sirach. And this guy writes a lot of wisdom. <laughs> Let me read you what the grandson says. He says, many great teachings have been, so this is, again, that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. He, so he's, he's, he's referring to a collection of many great teachings. And for these, we should praise Israel for instruction in, wis, in wisdom. So he's saying, because of what we as Israel have been given, like this is a treat. This is a treasure that we have that no one else has. So now those who read the scriptures, he's calling them scriptures now, must not only themselves understand them, but must also as lovers of learning be able through the spoken and written word to help the outsiders. All right, so do you see how he's talking about these scriptures? This is the written word. It's his scripture. These are good writings for good instruction. So my grandfather, who had devoted himself especially to the reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of our ancestors and had acquired considerable proficiency in them, was himself also led to write something pertaining to instruction and wisdom, so that becoming familiar also with his book, those who love learning might make even greater progress in living according to the law. So did you hear how he's describing the book that he's about to give us? It's, a, it's, a, it's like a commentary. It's like, a, hey, you have all this wisdom. My grandfather loved this wisdom, and these are the things he wrote about this. So that's how this apocryphal book describes itself, which is why we wouldn't include it as Scripture, but to say it's worth reading, just the same way that Jerome did. It's worth reading, but it's not Scripture. It's not inspired by God. So this is before Jesus comes. This is Jews before Jesus already understanding that they had a law, prophets, and other holy writings. Are you, you, does that make sense? Okay. And so then, and then the last bit of evidence that we have is the Old Testament itself. When you, when you read the Old Testament, uh, you see the books revered. Um, several times in the Old Testament, you will see some uh, language like in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Habakkuk, and Daniel. These things are written down. So it's not just an oral tradition. These things are written down is, is the language that's used a lot of times. Uh, think about when you read Chronicles or even uh, the Kings. You'll say, as for the rest of this story, is it not also written in... You remember that reading that language? Is it not also written in this book or that book? And what, what, what you're seeing there is the Old Testament itself testifying to other written things that are authoritative. Uh, the way that they, I mentioned it earlier, a lot of the holy writings being kept in the temple, uh, they revered these books, and they revered them not just as traditions, but as holy writings. Um, so that's the, the Old Testament. I don't have a lot of details on this side of the argument. But, um, I mean, think, think about what was kept in the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. What's in there? The scrolls. Yeah, the writings. What, what God has written for his people. They, they highly revered these things. So Jewish tradition in general is, is holding the writings in high regard. Uh, and, and I, think, I think we can consistently say 
This is the, the close of our Old Testament argument. We can consistently say that the Hebrew Bible historically has always been the Hebrew Bible. Um, after Moses, Joshua keeps it, keeps what Moses has written. We'll talk about transmission in a, next month, but uh, any, any questions? Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. That's our last argument. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, other than that, if somebody, and you earlier in this series, I think it was, you kind of were showing how like every Christian stuff is rooted in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, somebody, just on a simple scenario, where somebody says, well, how do I know the Bible's true? Me, like, what do you, why should I believe this is scripture? And what, what is scripture and all that? Mm-hmm. I would say our greatest bit of evidence is we have a guy who died and then rose again and, and has some authority <laughs> because of that. And, and he says, this is scripture. So, so to me, as a Christian... That's my strongest bit of evidence. But even not speaking as a Christian and just looking at the New Testament writings as um, historical, like we, they're all first century writings. Even, even the most liberal atheist would say these were all written in the first century. Uh, with that information, the question is, did those people understand this to be scripture, the Old Testament scripture. That's our only objective today is to prove that. And I think we can say pretty convincingly, yes, they believe this to be scripture. And not only them, but the people that came after them and the people that were before them also believe these writings to be scripture. So whether the scripture is true is a whole different argument, different question. But is it scripture? Did they believe it was? Yes. Yeah, Richard. Oh, that's a good question. That it was so. Yes, he believed them to be inspired and sacred. I think we can see that pretty clearly. Uh, would would there be added to that? We'll get to that with New Testament because really the New Testament is an addition to the Old Testament. So so do we have the right then to add to what was inspired Scripture? And we'll talk about that next week. That's a really good question.